Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. On last week's program, we went ahead without any guest. And uh, we've decided uh, that we're going to do the same on this week's program. We don't like to have just one voice go on for the better part of an hour. But uh, today's topic will be the situation in the Middle East, and I think we just need to basically hear from a lot of people. And uh, by that, I mean some writings out there in print, in in books, uh, off the web, in magazines, and newspapers. We're going to quote from a lot of people today to try and put what's going on in perspective. We would like to thank Gil uh, Metavoy, who spoke uh, spoke to me in preparation for this program. Uh, Gil's show, Crossing Continents, is heard every Sunday here on KDVS, and he always manages to, uh, I think, shine a light on what is going on over in the Middle East, um, based on his experience as an Israeli with a lot of people in the peace movement whom he's well acquainted with. Apparently, um, on a recent show, Gil read The Shame of Being an American, an essay by Paul Craig Roberts. And for the record, uh, Dr. Roberts is not exactly a wild-eyed leftist. He's a former associate editor of the Wall Street Journal, a former contributing editor for National Review, and was assistant secretary of the Treasury in the Reagan administration. We'll be quoting from his essay a little bit later. I believe Gil read it in its entirety, that essay on, on his program, and we, uh, I think we'll talk about that um, with uh, Gil Metavoy on next week's program. We'd also like to thank Christina Borgeson. We're going to quote extensively on today's program from her latest book titled Feet to the Fire. The book is subtitled Top Journalists Speak Out. And uh, speak out they do on the subject of uh, the media coverage and the world geopolitical situation in the Middle East in the wake of the September 11th attacks. We've had Christina on the program twice. We hope to have her on again. She's done just an outstanding job with this volume, Feet to the Fire. We cannot recommend it to you highly enough. If you don't have this book, we recommend that you do go out and get yourself a copy. By the nature of our theme today, today's program uh, is guaranteed to be a somewhat uh, grimmer uh, program than our typical show, but I think that is just unavoidable based on the topic we're going to take um, we're going to take on. We nevertheless do like to start the show in a certain fashion and uh, introduce a few lighter elements into the program. So let us uh, let us commence the show as we usually do with first of all this date in history. On this date, and this would be August 3rd in the year 1492, navigator Christopher Columbus set forth from the Spanish port of Palos on his attempted journey to the Far East. The Italian explorer was in the command of three ships, the Santa Maria, the Pinta, and the Nina, 
on his journey to find, of course, a western sea route to China, India, and the Spice Islands. Setting a model for many political leaders who would follow in his wake, Columbus kept a double logbook so his sailors would not know the real distance they had traveled out of sight of land on their voyage. It would take a couple of decades to sort out exactly what Columbus had discovered by accident, but of course uh, both eastern and western hemispheres would never be the same afterward. On this date in 1796 in Los Angeles, the Franciscan father Juan Crespi noted the La Brea tar pits in his diary. It turned out that the, uh, the Los Angeles basin had quite the oil field located right under it, uh, leading to a lot of fortunes about a century ago. This natural petroleum seep had evidently been present there for tens of thousands of years, and it trapped uh, numerous animals over the millennia whose fossils are still being dug out and studied by scientists in um, right off of Wilshire Boulevard down in L.A. And on August 3rd in 1963, the English rock group The Beatles played in The Cavern in Liverpool for the last time before leaving for a tour of the United States, which would turn out rather well for the Fab Four. Our quote of the day, and we've used it before, but uh, today's a day to use it again, comes from the Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana, who said, those who do not know history are condemned to repeat it. We will be doing some historical review before the hour is up. Our statistic of the day, according to Fortune magazine, is that spam accounted for 64.8% of global email traffic in June of this year. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for progress after an Italian court ruled that husbands in that nation no longer have the right to demand that their wives scrub floors on their knees. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for inexperienced sailors after two Irish thieves were rescued at sea after making off with a fishing boat and getting utterly lost. They had no experience of the sea, whatever, said rescuer Ray Stedman. They didn't even know how to switch the cabin light on. Radio Parallax strongly suspects that alcohol was involved in that caper. And uh, last week was an ugly week for cryptozoology. When it was reported that C. Thomas Biscardi, a Redwood City man who bills himself as world-renowned Bigfoot researcher sued the Great American Bigfoot Research Organization, its president and its vice president. The group was established last year to track, study, and learn about the Bigfoot creatures that are believed to inhabit North America. Biscardi says he was supposed to be paid $250,000 to lend his experience, knowledge, and reputation to conduct Bigfoot expeditions and to provide the group with the use of his library, which consists of things such as plaster casts, films, photos, and sound recordings. 
The group, the lawsuit claims, paid him only $65,000 and won't give him his stuff back. Biscardi's lawyer said he'd been negotiating with the attorney for the defendants, but then the attorney quit because he wasn't getting paid. All right, that's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, speaking of lawyers, from the Only in America file, we have the following. Dateline Las Vegas. A California businessman who lost millions of dollars in Las Vegas casinos is attempting to sue MGM Mirage Properties, claiming the company preyed on his gambling addiction. Shibley Horani of Long Beach claims that beginning in early 1995, representatives from MGM Grand and the Mirage aggressively solicited him to open lines of credit at the casinos, which prompted him to lose more than $5 million. Uh, we at Radio Parallax think gambling is a dumb thing to do and kind of a waste of time, but you know, on the other hand, um, let the buyer beware. We would like to note uh, on next week's program, we'll be speaking with Chris Payne, director of Who Killed the Electric Car, a feature-length documentary coming to theaters near you. We believe it is debuting locally on August 11th, so we'll be airing that interview with Mr. Payne on next week's show. And as a sidelight to, to that item, a story that is probably not related, except maybe distantly in some karmaic sense, we noted with some degree of amusement the front page story in the Sacramento Bee, July 21st, that um, people that have bought H2 Hummers are increasingly surprised to find out that on occasion, the wheels seem to be falling off. Evidently, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration is investigating how a part called a steering knuckle in Hummers H2 SUVs um, either fracture or fail, causing the suspension to collapse, or the wheels to fall off. Well, if you're going to gamble, let the buyer beware. And if you're going to buy a Hummer, turns out that's a bit of a gamble, too. We're going to be talking about a lot of uh, unsettling things in terms of foreign policy and domestic policy. I think that the nation has a right to be, uh, I, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know how to describe this, disgusted, amazed, um, flabbergasted, I don't know, fill in the blank over this story, which is Bush Renews Voting Rights Act Pledges to Enforce It. Quoting from Hamill Harris and Michael Abramowitz, writing in the Washington Post, President Bush signed the bill into law with considerable fanfare on the South Lawn of the White House, joined by civil rights leaders who have been at odds with his administration. These included NAACP board chairman Julian Bond, Jesse Jackson, and Al Sharpton. Also present were family members of three prominent civil rights figures whose names are attached to the new legislation, Rosa Parks, Coretta Scott King, and Fannie Lou Hammer, who was beaten and jailed trying to register to vote in Mississippi in 1962. So what this bill did was add a 25-year extension to the Voting Rights Act, uh, first signed into law by LBJ in 1965, 
the historic legislation opened up the ballot box to millions of African Americans across the South in the 1960s. Johnson signed the bill five months after the Selma, Alabama March for Voter Rights, and um, the legislation ended poll taxes, literacy tests, and various other election devices, which uh, politicians in the South had been using for decades, since the Reconstruction, really, after the Civil War, to keep black people from voting. GOP leaders, of course, were eager to renew this law before the November elections. In the House, there were actually some Southern Republicans who opposed provisions focusing on their states. The Senate, however, passed the bill unanimously, 98 to 0. Why is this story so interesting? Well, why is George W. Bush president? He's president because, allegedly, in the year 2000, the state of Florida gave him a 537-vote plurality, which swung the state out of the Al Gore column and into the Bush column. Had not George W. Bush's brother, Jeb Bush, and the Florida Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, not worked very hard to scrub the voter rolls of black people, Al Gore would have been elected president in 2000. So it is with some amusement I noted the prior article on this by Charles Babington, also writing in the Post, which closed with the following. Some local and national officials say the targeted oversight is no longer justified and is a relic of days when southern states could not be trusted to treat all citizens justly. But others say abuses still occur. Yeah, abuses still occur, like when... About 90,000 black people didn't get to vote in Florida in 2000. So Radio Parallax finds it truly ironic that George Bush signs this bill into law and George Bush is president because of the rather flagrant violations of the, the, the spirit and letter of the Voting Rights Act. Of course, a few days before he signed it, George Bush made a trip before the NAACP's annual convention, the first time he's done so as president, and promised that he would sign into law a renewal of the Voting Rights Act. It was noted in reporting in the Baltimore Sun uh, on Bush's speech to the NAACP that a wary murmur rippled through the audience when Bush said he came from a family committed to civil rights. It is, to the contrary, a documented fact that when George Herbert Walker Bush first ran for the Senate in 1964 in the state of Texas, he was quite firm in his opposition to the Voting Rights Act and to civil rights in general. And as far as Brother Jeb goes, well, (laughs) enough said. We would like to note on a slightly happier note that... uh, As far as politics in the Deep South goes, in neighboring Georgia, the uh, candidate for lieutenant governor, Ralph Reed, was defeated a couple weeks back. Ralph Reed, of course, was the former head of the Christian Coalition and was quite the national political operative. He had drummed up millions of evangelical votes for the Republican Party in the 1990s. So, uh, It turns out it was his association with Jack Abramoff, the disgraced Republican lobbyist, that uh, pretty much put the kibosh on Ralph Reed's uh, attempt to become lieutenant governor. 
Abramoff had uh, had evidently hired Mr. Reed, the pious Christian, the evangelical Christian, to lobby hard against a new um, Indian casino down in the area. Of course, it turned out that Abramoff had been hired by the other <laughs> Indian uh, casino operators in the area who were determined to have no competition come in. It is, of course, possible that Mr. Reed did not know where the dirty money he was being paid came from, but we, we shed no tears for his political loss. We, uh, we don't often quote from David Broder, uh, who writes for the Washington Post, because we find him to be uh, boring and not very informative. And this might be a good point to mention that the opinions expressed on Radio Parallax are those of the host alone and do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But anyway, Broder is boring. But he did note in a recent column that there is a grassroots movement afoot in this country mobilizing to field a third-party candidate to run for president through an electronic party convention on the Internet. The idea, according to organizers of Unity 08, is to tap into the 70% of voters whom polls say are disgusted with both the Republicans and Democrats. These independent voters, the movement's organizers say, are sick of partisanship and want leaders who will find pragmatic, centrist solutions to the country's problems. The odds against Unity 08 getting its candidate elected are slim. But Jonathan Alter noted in Newsweek, uh, funny things happen in election years. All right, let's take a, let's take a short break. We do want to note in passing, as far as the elections go, uh, Brad Friedman, one of our favorite bloggers, is doing some good work. We may want to refer you to his website, www.bradblog.com, where he's talking about the massive protests that are currently snarling Mexico City, not getting very much publicity here in the U.S., and uh, the fact that Lou Dobbs of CNN is on board looking at what's going on with voting machines and reporting that, well, after reviewing an election where an incumbent was almost taken out by an electronic voting machine that, that, that miscalculated the totals, and it was only a hand count that correctly uh, revealed that the incumbent, as expected, had won his election, Dobbs said, quote, if this message is not getting through, that's emanating from every corner of the country using these voting machines, I don't know what it will take. Well, we don't know either. We're going to keep talking about it, and so is Brad Friedman, and so are some other good people out there. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Recording a trail. I can't walk. Sure. 